A reading from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, amen. There's going to be a lot of opportunities in this sermon for you to either verbally or in your, just in your heart to agree with the goodness of God that is proclaimed over you in the gospel. And so I just want to give you the freedom to do that. As I preach this morning, as I, I just lay out what Paul is saying about the goodness of God, I just want to give you the permission to agree with the Lord Jesus in your spirit that the gospel is true. You can, you can say it out loud if you want to. You can say an amen. But there's a lot of good news here for you. We're calling this series Ephesians, an ancient church in an anxious age. And the uh, unbelievable reality for us is that there are ancient truths about us and about our God that are the keystone for your life. One of those keys for you is this. From ancient times we learn that the pressure is not on you. The pressure of life is not on you. The pressure, the weight of this world, the weight of your life is not on you. It is on Jesus Christ the Lord. There's only one human being who is worthy and who is capable of carrying the weight of your life, the weight of your sin, the weight of your suffering, the weight of your concerns, the weight of your family, the weight of your future, the weight of your hopes and your dreams, and you were not designed to carry this by yourself. The pressure is off of you. What Paul has just told us, and what I preached on the last two weeks in verses 1 through 14 is that God through Jesus Christ has dispensed an immeasurable number of blessings onto you. Paul wrote the longest sentence in the history of Greek that we know of to try to describe for you all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ, but it, it's, there's no way to contain it in one sentence. It's just effusive, lavishing love from God upon you and Jesus Christ comes along and he says in Matthew 11, 
28, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And how Jesus does that, it's not just emotional language. He's not just telling you something that's really nice that you need to hear. He's backing it up. He's saying, I am carrying the weight for you. And how he carries the weight is what we read in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. But we often, if we're honest, we don't live like that. We don't live like the strong son of God is walking step for step with us in life, carrying the load as we walk alongside him. Instead, we live as if life is a tower of cards. And if the wind blows slightly in the wrong direction, or if we make a wrong decision, or if this errand doesn't get run, or we don't figure this out, or we don't get this project done, or you know, this morning my car actually didn't start, and my wallet was in my other car, I forgot my wallet, I got here. I mean, it was one of those mornings for me. And we have these days where we're like, you know what? I don't feel like I can handle the complexities of life. Well, the good news of the gospel is I don't have to and you don't have to. We have a God who loves us and gave himself up for us. We're often like Elisha's servant in 2 Kings 6 who woke up in the morning to find that the Syrian army had gathered all around them, and they were ready to just take them down. And he goes in a panic to Elisha, and he just is like, are you seeing what I'm seeing? And Elisha's like, Lord, open up his eyes to see what I can see about you. And, and God opens up the servant's eyes after Elisha prays, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened his eyes and he saw the mountain behind them was full of the army of the Lord, full of horses and chariots that had come to do battle for him. Paul, in this passage, in the subsequent follow-up to Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, which is the spiritual blessings in Christ, what Paul is saying now is, Lord God, what I want for the Ephesian church and what I want for the church of all time is that you would open up their eyes to see all that is true of them now in Jesus Christ. He is praying that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. The old song, it's a new song, but it's kind of old, and maybe in the 70s, 80s. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see you. I want to see you high and lifted up. That song. God, this is about opening the eyes of our hearts. You see, Christ has done everything for us to take the pressure off. And now the prayer is that ensues here in verses 15 through 23, open the eyes of our hearts. So first of all, we see in this section the response to the good news of verses 3 through 14, the spiritual blessings in Christ. The response is to pray. And then secondly, we see the request in light of the good news that God would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. And third is the reason why this good news in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is true. And is that God has put all things under the feet of Jesus, and he now rules over all things. Let me pray for us as I get going. Lord, we do ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Even now, Lord, we are a people that we do have a lot on our minds. Sometimes our mornings don't go like we thought they were going to go. Sometimes our weeks and months and years don't go like we wanted them to go. 
So Lord, we ask that this morning that you would bless us with your spiritual presence, that we would have the wisdom and revelation of the gospel revealed to us in our souls, that you would enable us to believe it, to believe that it's true in a way that transforms our life. Lord, that is a gift from you. And so we do call upon you now and pray for that presence and act and will of your spirit in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first response, or the response to the spiritual blessings in Christ is to pray. Paul starts out, for this reason. If you're a student of the Bible and you read for this reason, you need to go back to what happened before that. Paul's saying, for this reason, in light of everything that Christ has done for us in 3 through 14, let me briefly tell you about that. In Christ is mentioned 10 times, and then we're told we have at least 10 blessings in Christ. 10 spiritual blessings. Let me enumerate those for you. He chose us before time to be holy and blameless in his sight. He predestined us in love. He adopted us as sons. We are redeemed by his blood. Our trespasses are forgiven. He has given us rich and lavish love and grace. He has made note to us the mystery of his will to unite everything in Christ. He has made us his people, his possession. And he has sealed us with a down payment of the promised Holy Spirit, guaranteeing for us and assuring us that all of those things are true of us in Jesus Christ. And now Paul is saying, he's saying we need to pray. Why do we need to pray? We need to pray that we would actually believe that. So even in this, I want to tell you that the pressure is not on you. The the wisdom and revelation of God in 3 through 14, the blessings we have in Christ, what I just listed for you and more, You can study that for the rest of your life. You can stop doing everything else, move to a monastery somewhere in the desert, and just focus on those words, and you still won't get all of what is there. What is needed is that the Holy Spirit would reveal to you how unbelievably true this is in your life. That in Christ, you have been given all of these blessings and more. Paul says, I have heard of your faith and your love. We need to make note of the fact that these are Christians. What that means is that when you become a Christian, you don't all of a sudden understand everything. You don't get to a point in your Christian life where you all of a sudden, you've arrived and you've you've kind of assimilated all of the knowledge of God. No, Paul is praying for them because they're Christians, because there's more for them to know. This is so freeing. If you will just admit to yourself and confess, I love what Claire says, it's good for the soul. Just confess that you don't know everything. Man, that's freeing. You don't, let's say confess that you don't know 90% of what God knows. Maybe 99. Maybe 99.9 if you actually think about it that way. Which means there's so much more for you to learn. That's so freeing because you don't have to have it all together. And God gives grace. And so Paul is praying for Christians. These are Christians who actually really know the Lord. They know theology. It says he's heard of their love, evidence toward all the saints. These are real Christians who still have so much room to grow in the gospel. And he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Paul planted this church. He pastored this church for three years. He moved on. 
There's nothing that gives him more delight than knowing he has grandchildren and great-grandchildren in the faith that know the Lord. And he, he does something really important that I want to point out here. He praises the Lord. He praises the Lord in his prayer. His prayer is full of petition. We should petition. But his prayer is also one of praise. Praise to the Lord. How are you doing at stopping and praising the Lord in your life for what he has already done? I know there's so much more we need God to do. This world is broken. We are broken and we have so many needs and we're going to get to that in just a minute. But how are you at praising God for what he has already done? What about those straight places now in your life that used to be crooked? What about the whole places now that used to be broken? What about those light places now that used to be cloaked in darkness? Do you give God the praise when he works his grace in the world around us and in your heart? Do you stop and say, God, thank you for that? Thank you. Earlier in the pandemic, John Krasinski, who was in the office as Jim, uh, came out with a show called Some Good News uh, early in the pandemic. This is when we were all on lockdown and quarantine. He was filming these encouraging things from his house as people sent in video clips of how people were encouraging each other and serving each other in the midst of the pandemic. Some good news. And it was actually brilliant. I love that. I love what he did there. But as Christians, we have more than some good news. We have immeasurable good news for us in Jesus Christ. We have so much in Jesus Christ that we can praise God for, some of which is included for us in 3 through 14. My question for you this morning is, can you see it with fresh eyes? Can you see what Christ has done with new eyes? And I think for most of, it, the, most of us, the answer is yes and no. For most of us, the answer is, I believe, help my unbelief. We're in the middle. There are some times when we're able to praise God, and there's some times when we're really not. And that's why Paul wrote this section, because he knows we need to pray that the eyes of our heart would be continually enlightened. So that's his request. That's the second point. The response is prayer. The request is that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. He says, I am praying that the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he's praying to. And I know that God's name is mentioned in the Bible a lot, and we often just kind of blow past that. But I want to stop for a second. And Claire just prayed through redemptive history for us, which is really helpful, so I don't need to go into that for you. But we're talking about the God of redemptive history. We're talking about the God who worked salvation for his people over time. We're talking about Yahweh who saw his people in their sin, and he sent his own son to be the Savior. And then Paul is now doing something a bit audacious, it seems. He's praying that God would do even more. He's saying, God, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you've already done so much, immeasurably more than we could even imagine. But here's something else I'm going to ask of you. I'm going to ask that you would open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, that you would reveal to us the wisdom that you have, the wisdom of the gospel, that we would see what you see, that we would see like Elisha's servant sees, that we would have our eyes open to spiritual realities that just 
are beyond us and that we don't fully comprehend. He's praying that the Holy Spirit would work in us. Now, the Holy Spirit is given to every believer fully, 100%, when you become a Christian. How do we know that? Well, we know that from Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. We just prayed through this. It's, it's, we just taught through this. It's one of the most uh, compelling passages on the presence of the Holy Spirit for every believer. He's a down payment given. He's a seal given. He's a promise given to every believer. When we become Christians, we receive all of the Trinity. You don't get Father and Son and part of the Holy Spirit. You get Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You get the whole Trinity. But as we receive the whole Holy Spirit, we need the Holy Spirit to then teach us and to bring us into the knowledge and the revelation of God. And so he calls upon the Spirit to do his work in us. And he, in particular, asked the Holy Spirit to do three things. First of all, he asked the Holy Spirit to give us the knowledge of the hope to which he has called us. The hope to which he has called us. Now, hope, inherently within it, there's a future-orientedness intrinsic in the idea of hope. When we are full of hope, we believe we have something to look forward to. When we are not full of hope, when we are hopeless, we believe that we, we need to dread the future or fear the future. But we as Christians should be full of hope in the future calling given to us in Jesus Christ. What are some things we have to look forward to in Jesus? Well, Philippians 1.6 says that we should look forward to being continually transformed into the image of Christ. It says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Those areas of your life that you wonder, what's going to happen in those areas of my life? What's going to happen is that Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is going to keep on transforming you. He's going to keep on working in you. We have hope that we can hold on, that God's going to hold on to us through the trials of life, no matter how difficult things get. Romans 38, 38 and 39 says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That means that in the future you have the hope that God will never, ever let you go. He will never leave you or forsake you. You have the hope that one day all things will be made new. That all crying and pain and tears and brokenness will be gone. Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There shall be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Revelation 22, 2 and 3, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. We have great hope in our lives. We have great hope that we will be transformed. We have great hope that God will never leave us in our suffering. We have great hope that our suffering, whatever your suffering is, it will not be the end of the story. It won't be the end of the story for you or your children or your parents. The end of the story is the redemption of Jesus Christ of all things. 
And that's good news. And Paul is praying that we would know this. We'd know the hope of our calling. The second thing he prays for is that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This riffs on a theme from last week, verses 11 and 12, where we are God's inheritance, where God is now saying that you are my portion, my possession, you're my people, I love you. And what, what Paul is calling us to understand here is that we need to live in, in light of that, that reality that we are secure in the love of God, that love that will not let us go. That love that, that cannot love us more and will not love us less. That love of God that he would so, so care for us that he would call us his children, his adopted children. There's nothing closer to our hearts as parents than our children, and we are, we are flawed people. We're broken people. And God calls you his child. He says, I will never let you go. Just like I led the people of God throughout all of their trials and temptations, led them through the Red Sea, led them into the promised land, so will I lead you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I have you by my righteous right hand. You are my inheritance. And that is a reality for us. When we're living through these weeks that we go through in life, you are not alone. You are never alone. You have, yes, a church community around you, which is the hands and feet of Jesus, hopefully to you, but even more so than that, you have Jesus Christ who says in John 6, you will never, ever be snatched out of my hand. What that means is that there is no abuse that will not be totally healed. There is no depression that will not be totally lifted one day. There's not any anxiety that will not be swept away by his love when his kingdom comes. And we get to experience part of that now and it fully in the future, all shame will be melted in his embrace, and we get to experience that embrace even now. Paul is praying that we would know what it means to be loved by God as his glorious inheritance in the saints. And the third thing that Paul prays for, and the final thing, which really everything else flows from this, is that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. But I'm going to stop before I go into that for just a second and re-anchor us in the realities of our lives here for just a moment. Because we're not called to believe that God has immeasurably great power in general as a nice idea, a detached theme, a pie-in-the-sky notion. We're called to believe it now, right now. In the middle of COVID-19, in the middle of the Delta variant, 18 months into COVID, in a nation that's politically divided, that doesn't even read the same news sources, has different echo chambers that we listen to. We're called to believe it right now in a racially charged America. We're called to believe that God has immeasurably great power in whatever you're facing in your family life, whatever your children are going through, whatever you're going through, whatever health challenges you might have. You're called to believe that God has surpassing power right now. And I just want to say, let's acknowledge, that is not something that is easy for us to do, if we're just being honest for a minute. I heard of, an, of a, a way of describing this moment that we're in that was really helpful for me. There's a, an idea that's being talked about in, in circles of art and philosophy and culture these days a little bit more than I've heard before called liminal 
space, liminal space. Liminal space is like an in-between time. It's a time when you're in a holding pattern. It's a time when you're on the threshold of something new, but you're not there yet. It's like you're in, let's say you're in Manhattan and you're catching a train. You got off a bus and you're walking through a tunnel and you're going into the subway and you expect to be in that tunnel for roughly five minutes, but it's been 18 months. 18 months in a subway tunnel where you're like, wait a second, I thought we were going to get on that train and you really want to get on that train. Like the whole world's trying to figure out how to catch the next train, but we're stuck in between the bus and the train, and we're in a liminal space. The thing about liminal space in the history of art and creative times is it's a time that can be a time of despair, anxiety, depression. It can also be a time of great creativity, great transformation, and great hope. It's a liminal space. The reality of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came into our tunnel. He came and he is with us right now in this space. And he's saying, now in the tunnel, I'm giving you immeasurably great power. I am am with you. I'm not just out there telling you I have power. I am with you. I've come all the way in, all the way to be with you in this space. But the question is, will we turn to Christ in our tunnel Or will we turn away from him, which usually looks like lighting our own fires, running in our own directions, endlessly, ceaselessly trying to get ourselves out of our own jams, which end up in the same tunnel until we reach out and experience Christ in the tunnel. And so we have the response, which is to pray. We have the request that we would see with new eyes. And finally, we have the reason that we can pray and request things of God because we expect breakthrough. There's no use in praying. There's no use in asking God to give us spiritual wisdom and insight if we don't expect him to answer that prayer. The point of Ephesians 1, 15 through 23 is breakthrough. It is breakthrough in the tunnel of life, in the middle of life. When you can't figure it out, it is experiencing Christ in the liminal space. So the reason why we can expect this of God is because we can expect breakthrough because he has put all things under the feet of Jesus. I'll explain that in just a minute. But the rest of this passage flows out of Paul telling us why we can expect breakthrough. Why we can expect immeasurably great power. The first reason is he has revealed his power to us in the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus proves to us that God can do all things. He can literally break through death to life. Literally. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He died. He was really dead. He was not mostly dead like the princess bride. He was really dead. He was a man who died on the cross for your sins. He was in the tomb for three days. In the ancient Near East, three days meant that you were not mostly dead, that you were dead, totally dead. There were some that believed that you could still be alive somehow 
but your soul left your body at three days, and after three days, Jesus Christ, through the power of God, was raised up. The first fruits of the resurrection, there are going to be more that follow him. But in the middle of history, a man was raised from the dead. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And Paul is saying because Jesus was raised from the dead, it means he has immeasurable power available to you in the tunnels of your life. Because he was raised from the dead, you can expect breakthrough. The second reason we can expect breakthrough is he has revealed his power in the reign of Jesus Christ. After God raised up Jesus Christ, he raised him up even higher and he ascended up and he seated Christ at his right hand and he is now reigning, meaning he has the highest position and authority over all creation. Meaning that there is no one who has greater authority than Jesus Christ right now. He is sovereign over all things. He is reigning at the right hand of God. Not only is he reigning, and you can expect breakthrough because of that, you can expect breakthrough because he has revealed his power also in the name of Jesus. It's not just in his position, it's in his name. He's given the name that is above every name. The name is above every name. We learn in Philippians 2, 11 and 12, is that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess to the glory of, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We read in Colossians 1, 18, that he is sufficient, that he, Jesus, holds all things together. He has a name that is above every name. What this means is that when the demons hear of the name of Jesus, they run. Because they know there is no other spiritual authority greater than them. When, when powers in this world hear the name of Jesus, there will be a time when they will submit themselves to Jesus Christ as well. What this means is that there is no sin you can face along the road. There's no person who can come against you and hurt you. There is no power in all of the universe that is greater and higher than the name of Jesus. There is no tunnel you can face in life that Jesus cannot drive a train directly through. All right? There is no reality in this world that is more powerful than him. There's no condition you can learn about in your life. Nothing is greater and higher than the name of Jesus Christ. And finally, you can expect breakthrough because he's revealed his power in putting all things under his feet. This imagery comes from Psalm 110.1, which is probably not a psalm you're familiar with. If you are, good for you. But actually, Psalm 110.1 is the most quoted verse in the New Testament from the Old Testament. So actually, the New Testament writers, the apostles, felt like Psalm 110 was important. Psalm 110 says, it's where David writes, he says, the Lord says to my Lord, 
sit there while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Basically what he's saying is that God is saying to the Son, God the Father is saying to God the Son, I want you to sit there while I make all creation submit to your rule and your authority. There's something about putting your feet on someone else in the ancient Near East that demonstrated total and complete authority. Much like the state flag of Virginia with King George III, where King George, uh, excuse me, King George is laying down and Lady Virtue is standing with her foot on the throat of King George and, and she is saying, thus to all who are tyrants. That's what America is saying to King George. Well, that's what Jesus is saying ultimately to the world. I am in authority over everything. I will have every power underneath my rule and my authority. All things have been put under the feet of Jesus Christ. This means that Jesus is truly Lord. So you can expect breakthrough in your life. You can expect breakthrough because Jesus was raised from the dead. He's reigning. He has the name above every name. And he's actually the Lord. N.T. Wright says that when Jesus died on the cross, was raised from the dead, what he did is he, what he already had by right as being the son of God, he already had it by right, he was already the son, he then proclaimed his lordship in fact. What he had by right, he now proclaimed in fact. So in the facts of history, Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. So what would it be like to see what Jesus Christ has done for us? What would it be like to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we would know the hope to which he has called us? We would know the glorious inheritance that is is ours being the saints. That we would know the immeasurable power available and given to us who believe. What would that be like? It would be something like Elisha's servant that day who woke up and saw all of the terror all around And then God opened up his eyes and he saw all these amazing things that were true in Jesus Christ. It would be like waking up consistently and believing that the pressure is not all on you. It would be like waking up consistently and believing that Jesus Christ is with you, holding you, bearing up the weight of this world on his shoulders and not on yours. Wouldn't that be beautiful? As I end with that, I want you to not feel pressure from that statement. That you need to somehow get yourself into a position that you no longer feel those pressures. Instead, you need to pray. We need to pray. We need to pray that God would do that. That he would show us how amazing he is, all that's available to us in Christ. That he would transform us in these liminal spaces, these tunnels of our lives, that we would see and believe the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you that you are good, that you are good, and that your love and mercy endure forever. And Lord, so we pray right now, I pray for us at Trinity Park, for every person here and every person watching online. Lord God and Father, We pray that you would send your spirit, that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we would know you, that we would know the hope to which you have called us, that we would know the glorious inheritance that is ours in the saints. We would know the immeasurably great power 
given to us who believe that is like the working of your mighty strength that you exerted when you raised Jesus Christ from the dead and you seated him far above all rule and authority and you gave him the name that is above every name and you submitted all things to him and you gave us as the church to him so that now Jesus Christ, as it says in verse 23, what is he doing? He is filling us up Lord, we pray that you would fill up your church with yourself, that you would fill us with your very presence, that we would know and believe that the gospel of grace really is true. It really is ours. We pray that you would really transform us in this tunnel space of our lives that we're living in right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.